to look ahead at this morning's worship and the theme, a very serious theme of betrayal. And uh, John and uh, others who were involved in planning worship began to think through what kind of songs would lead us into worship and that could touch on that theme. And I think the selections this morning have helped us to do just that in the context of the cross, as several of our songs have affirmed also the context of how we work with our own pride and how we come to the feet of Jesus. Countdowns lead to particular moments in time and culminate in particular noteworthy events. Just a couple of months ago, we were counting down toward midnight to the opening of 2012. If you were anywhere near a news source a couple of weeks ago, you also probably saw some 50-year-old news footage of the countdown to the launch of John Glenn and his Mercury capsule to orbit the Earth. These countdowns always leave us sure that the number one reason is going to top all the rest. And this year's Super Bowl, for fans on both sides, brought us down to the final ticks of the clock and the final play of desperation. This morning, we start a four-week countdown to the most important moment in all history. You can read all about these events in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels. And those Gospels together form a a mini-biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. He started his ministry about 20 miles to the east of Jerusalem beside a small little river. And he ends his ministry, at least so it was thought, at the other end of those 20 miles outside the walls of Jerusalem itself. In this Countdown to the Cross series, we will unpack the last few hours of that whole story. We enter into these events during the night before Jesus dies. Jesus and his disciples met together to share in the carefully prescribed Passover supper. From the moment they were in the room, Jesus did far more than walk them through the regulations and the routines associated with that meal that they celebrated every year as faithful Jews. He took time to teach them about godliness and about selflessness by both what he said and what he did during the course of that evening. And then they went out into the dark of the city streets. What awaits them? If you were to sit down and read through any one of those gospel accounts straight through, you would come to this point in the story and know that nothing good is likely to happen. Now, if this were a movie I was watching as a child, I would now close my eyes or I would scrunch down in my theater seat to avoid watching what's to come. Or I would mutter under my breath, don't go to the garden, don't go to the garden, hoping somehow the characters will actually hear me and alter their steps. But that can't happen in the gospel story any more than in the films of my childhood. Now there is good in these moments. The time that Jesus shared that night with his followers had been full of meaning. He prayed for them. They sang. That's got to be good, right? They had each other. They went to a place they often went. It was a garden, and that brings images of beauty and peace. It's a place where they can sit and look out over the little valley between them and the city beyond, 
and they can see the lights of the city that evening. It's a place of comfort and safety and rest. And then all hell breaks loose as the light of torches and lanterns form the prelude to the arrival of soldiers and Jewish officials. They are out to do no good. They confront the group they find there. There is an interrogation of sort, and there is betrayal. And betrayal is always nasty, nasty business. Let's take a look at our text for the morning. I invite you to take out your Bibles or the Bibles we provide under the chairs around you and turn to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. And we're going to start reading this morning at verse 1. I think you'll want to have Bibles open so you can follow along as I read and then to have open before you as we walk through the events that unfold. Let me pray for us. God, there is no more gut-wrenching figure in all of Scripture than Judas, the betrayer. We need your spirit to be strongly at work in us. Prepare us, protect us, provide for us, and provoke us as we yield ourselves to your word right now. Amen. Remember, this is God's holy word. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, Then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Every time we open up God's word, he intends that his spirit will give us understanding. And I pray that that's going to be true for each one of us here this morning. Thomas Merton contemplative brother during the 20th century of the Abbey of Gethsemane writes, the joy of the love of God springs from a liberation from all selfhood by the annihilation of every trace of pride. Let me read that for us again. The joy of the love of God 
springs from a liberation of all selfhood by the annihilation of every trace of pride. This runs deep and is counterintuitive to our culture. We are trained to think self-esteem, my perspective, and my way. We think I is everything. Merton, echoing Jesus, affirms also, the only way to possess his greatness is to pass through the needle's eye of your own absolute insufficiency. Oh, that the way of Judas would have been different. Rather than his own sufficiency, rather than exalt self, he would have annihilated every bit of pride. He would have bypassed the betrayal, bypassed the garden, but he did not. Here is a statement from Proverbs 14 that seems to me to sum up his reality. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage we've just read in the message refers to Judas as the one who stood out like a sore thumb. Earlier in the evening, he was with Jesus in the eleven, and now he was with the enemy. Are you with me? A heroic figure might shout as he prepares to advance toward a specified goal, and the betrayer's answer is a deafening no, delivered in a silent kiss. There have been other famous betrayers. Among them are King David, who betrayed his people, his wife, and Uriah the Hittite. Ephialtes, the shepherd who betrayed Leonidas and the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Julius Caesar. Benedict Arnold, who betrayed the American Revolution at West Point. And there have been other betrayers of less renown, but of equally horrendous impact. Coworker, classmate, spouse, child, fellow soldier, team member, church member, friend, pastor, or parent. In any walk of life, at any time of life, someone might decide to betray you or the group to which you both belong. Let's take a look at what we know about Judas and his betrayal. And here you could easily ask, must we? Can't we just close our eyes and scrunch down in our seats and pretend it's not real? You might plea. But no needs to be the reply. We need to look at the whole teaching of Scripture as we count down to the cross. So with eyes and hearts wide open, let's forge ahead as we survey everything the Bible tells us about Judas, or at least what we can reasonably conclude. Let's start with Jesus. He chose Judas to be one of the twelve. Now, we don't know the precise wording of his calling any more than we do a few of the other disciples, but we know that calling would have come in a real way, much like all the other callings Jesus issued. Now, one thing I'm not quite sure about, and not sure about because I'm not sure Scripture is clear about, and that is, did Jesus know who Judas was and what he would do when he called him to be a disciple? There are places in Scripture that Jesus clearly says there are things only the Father knows. And so in the midst of that, I'm not quite sure if he knew fully the nature of Judas at that moment. 
But we do know that Jesus included Judas in every bit of the ministry as he did all the other of the 12. He expected Judas, like the other 11, to learn under his authority by watching his way of life and by listening to what he taught as their rabbi. Now, Jesus knew that one of them would betray him, and eventually he knew that person was Judas. And then Jesus controls the very timing of the betrayal by saying to Judas during the Passover supper, go quickly, do what you're going to do. What a remarkable thing. Jesus submitted to God's will by submitting to betrayal when he could have stopped Judas in his tracks. Now let's turn to Judas. I don't think Judas accepted Jesus' invitation with traitorous intentions. I believe that his pride was not dealt with in some way along the way. We know he was a lover of money. He became miserly, uncaring, and rude. And he was also a thief. We are told that he helped himself to some of the contributions to the ministry. And he offered up Jesus at a price. I'm not at all sure that Judas's primary motivation was money, since the amount he was paid was so insignificant. He would have been far better off financially to keep dipping into the ministry funds in the years to come rather than betray his rabbi. And maybe he got his feelings hurt along the way. Someone hurt or who takes offense is a candidate for betrayal. Was this true of Judas? He was not a Galilean, as most of, or all of the twelve were. His full name, Judas Iscariot, most likely denotes the town where he was raised, and that was far outside of the region of Galilee, to the south. He's never named for anything particularly stellar in the Gospels. In fact, when he is mentioned, it's always in a bad light. So it's possible the other disciples looked down on him, and he knew it. Maybe Judas didn't like the way Jesus treated him. After all, it was Jesus he betrayed. Jesus was the object of his dark intent. We see plenty of evidence in the Gospels that Jesus knew the thoughts and motivations of the twelve. He called some of them out individually. He called the whole group out on a number of occasions. And sometimes the response was to turn in obedience, but at other times not. And so it's quite likely that Judas knew he didn't measure up in Jesus' eyes. Maybe Judas disagreed with Jesus' methods. This possibility has been popularized in my lifetime. The premise is that Judas just wanted to get things moving. He thought Jesus was going about things the wrong way. He thought if he forced Jesus' hand, forced him to step up in some way and establish his earthly rule, uh, then everything would get better. So he purposely ratcheted up the heat. He upped the ante, so to speak. Because everything was going inexorably wrong, he thought. Maybe he himself was the only one who could make things turn out better. What we do know is that he took some decisive steps that night. He left the supper when Jesus instructed him to do so. He received his money from the ruling council. He chose to accompany those sent to arrest Jesus. He entered the garden with them. He chose to not just point out Jesus to them from a distance, but to reveal himself to Jesus and the other disciples. So he got up face to face with Jesus. Rather than hang back in anonymity, 
he stepped toward, forward into infamy. We can never be absolutely sure how these factors that I've described from all of the gospel accounts influenced the betrayer. What I believe we do know is that he is no solitary monster. And the greatest clue we have of this is the response of the eleven earlier during the supper when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They didn't all turn to Jesus and say, I bet it's you. Instead, they each asked, is it me? John tells us that Satan was the ultimate source of the problem. He found his man in Judas. It must have been with horror that John and the rest watched the soldiers and the council members come into the garden, led by Judas. In a heartbeat, they would have seen the treachery. It was as plain as day. Betrayal is always a dark business, born in the shadows of one's mind and heart, and then carried out in hiddenness. It is significant that John tells us it was night. We find out later two other facts about Judas. He returns the blood money, and he commits suicide. Why? I think it was because he still had two minds. He could have been happy in one of two ways. He could have been better and not betrayed Jesus. He could have been worse and had no remorse. One commentator writes, as it was, he was bad enough to do the deed of infamy and good enough to be unable to bear the burden of its guilt. Three years earlier, when the story started, Judas stepped into the path of discipleship to live in obedience to Jesus' words and to step into his way of living. He was positioned like the others to help bring in the kingdom. He was one of the good guys. But at some point, he turned down the path of pride. He allowed himself to step into the plans of Satan, the father of lies, the one who always deceives, who always deceives by saying, Go ahead, do it your way. Of course you're mistreated. Of course you have a right to be angry. Of course your idea is better. Of course you have been hurt. Of course you should do harm to your brother. Of course you are truly justified. 19th century Scottish professor of theology, A.B. Bruce, understands the gospel accounts to teach that Judas approve the good while not always doing good. One whose heart beat for what was noble and holy, but also called out to him to take the way of selfishness. There he proved what was uppermost all along. Personal interest superseded all in the end. Judas chose his own way over the way of Jesus. Is it me? All twelve asked, is it us? We must ask ourselves. Is there any place where you play the role of betrayer? Is it in your household, among your friends, in your family, at your workplace, in your school, with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Our betrayal can, like that of Judas, start out at the level of attitude, it will show itself in how we think toward another person. 
It will eventually erupt into words or actions with a shout or with a kiss. We can be a tool of Satan in a heartbeat. And the harm we bring to Jesus, to the kingdom, to ourselves and to others will be utterly devastating. Some of us are the victims of betrayal. Someone we thought was walking well with us takes a different path for reasons we may never understand any more than we understand the way of Judas. No matter what contributed to it, this person has betrayed us or soon will. When betrayed, the devastation is incalculable. Friends, the provision of God in the face of betrayal, ours or someone else's, is the same. Come clean with God. Stop. Yield to Jesus. He will pick you up, hold you close, and take you into the shelter of his loving, merciful, grace-filled embrace. If you are the betrayer, humble yourself and ask to be forgiven. God forgives. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to purify us from sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are the betrayed, humble yourself and forgive. Jesus forgave. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing, was part of his testimony from the cross. Remember where that evening began? It began at the table. And so this morning, we end at the table. Judas and Jesus, the betrayer and the betrayed. As we approach the table, let's do so with a moment of silence. As you open up yourself before God to consider what your walk with Jesus and with others is right now. Let's pray.